Somebody's microphone is humming. Now it's not. Okay, so welcome to the uh, the Sangha U.S. Friday. It's uh, what November the twenty seventh. Is that it, or that's Thai time? So anyway, uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. You know they call. Uh, Thanksgiving Day, um, a holiday. But the way that I look at it, every day is a holiday. Every day is a holiday, which means every day is Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> and so I wish you all a happy holiday, a happy Thanksgiving Day. All you have to do is to remember that today is a holiday. All you have to do is remember that today is a day of Thanksgiving. Now, in West American tradition, Thanksgiving actually has quite a lot to do with certain um, things that happen. But this kind of stuff happens every day anyway. Uh, the biggest example that I know of is the roast turkey. And every one of us have a turkey to roast every day. Every day there's some roasting turkey. And so we were talking about this with Keyshawn just yesterday, and he mentioned about um, uh, how to treat family during this holiday season. And that I mentioned to him that it was very hard for me to learn to compliment people. That when I was a really young kid, I wouldn't compliment anybody. I mean, I made an intention out of it. I wasn't ever going to compliment anyone because that was kind of like giving them points in a and scores in a game that only I was playing. <laughs> but it turned to find out that I was wrong, that when we compliment people, we're actually giving ourselves points in that game because we make people feel good. And so uh, that led into the quality of buttering up, that we need to butter up our friends. We need to tell them that we like them. We need to remind them that things are okay. And in that sense, we have to baste that roast turkey. Have to butter it up. Have to, have to put some smiles on it. And then every meal is delicious when it's well buttered. So I thought that I would mention that. That's my Thanksgiving joke for this year. <laughs> That's great, thank you. <laughs> so Keyshawn was asking about the four foundations of mindfulness because really the word mindfulness is almost a weak word that when we hear mindfulness, we don't understand how important or powerful that it is. And yet we do need to continue to be reminded to wake up and use the higher functions of the brain rather than continuing to go along on automatic pilot or living uh, the way that we're used to living. Doing things on automatic pilot, one of the things that's quite common in the West is driving an automobile on automatic pilot. 
And that's why there are so many accidents on the road. It's because when you're on automatic pilot uh, and things are just rocking along smoothly, going as you would expect them to go, then there's no problem. And then we get logged into it or we're not paying attention or we go half asleep or whatever, and then something happens and our reaction time to it is often a reaction based upon instinct rather than on wisdom because we don't wake up. And this is why people have uh, not just automobile accidents, which are severe. We have problems every day when we're on automatic pilot. And so waking up to what uh, the inputs that we have and waking up to one of the main inputs that we have to deal with is the thoughts that we just had. This is an input. It's kind of like spinning or generating data. And so uh, how we respond to this has to do with our quality of waking up, of actually paying attention to what we're thinking. Hello, Robert. Welcome in. Howdy. Venice. I, talking yeah, about here. We've got Sandra too. She's uh, what was that? There's a very, very bright light over your right shoulder. Can you deal with that, Robert? Yeah, sure. You got it. So we were talking, starting about mindfulness. The word in Pali is sati. And sati uh, is a powerful word. It's almost like an uh, an end of dodge that we've never used before, so that it will come up quickly. We want it. To, we want sati to come up quickly because the only other option is is for the instincts to come up quickly. And so uh, we want to practice it this way. In fact, Sati has three nine primary qualities to it. And that is how often it occurs, how strong it is when it does occur, and when it is uh, in operation, how fast is it? These are the three qualities that we want to um, massage and um, exercise and uh, and bring up. So one of the things that you will see in um, spiritual work oftentimes are physical exercises that have to do with speed. You see this in martial arts, but but martial arts that we know of is martial arts um, is actually tightly uh, connected to Buddhism in traditional times or ways. And so some of the practices that the Buddhist monks would do would be practicing how fast things can happen for the mind. So an example of that would be um, uh, in martial arts, firing, but also um, waking up to uh, things in the sense of whenever something surprises you, notice 
that you have been surprised and look at the sequence of events that happen so that we can get to our lives to the point that we're never surprised about anything or very, very rarely surprised about anything. One of the things that I practice here at the house with, with my friends, uh, especially Kitty, is to come to the room that she's in or at least just stand in the doorway to see if she knows that I'm there. In other words, waking up the awareness. Um, an example of what happened uh, just a couple of nights ago, because it was very heavy rainstorm. And a bird flew into the room. I saw the bird out of the corner of my eye. I was actually looking at the cell phone and I was doing this. And out of the corner of the eye, I see the bird enter the room. He flies around the room, lost. He bumps into one of the cabinets and then he reorientates himself and goes out that the same door that he came back in. And while I'm watching this bird, the bird is in there about five seconds or so. And out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that neither Tam nor Kitty had noticed that a bird had come into the room. <laughs> Catch it. Now, how am I going to convince them that this great big bird was in the room with them just an instant ago? Uh, was it a turkey? It was a turkey, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was a turkey. <laughs> and so we also got a Sandra here. She's listening. Okay, great. Hi. Okay. Hey. <laughs> okay, so the quality of sati that we're looking for has this quality of immediately becoming aware of the environment. One of the games, in fact, that Achan Po played with me. Now, it wasn't a, uh, a teasing gotcha kind of game. It was much more noble, sophisticated. But basically, he did two things that were remarkable. One would be that he would come out and stand outside the cootie where I live. He would just stand there. And when I would recognize he was there, the first question I had to mind was, how long has he been there? And now, how much he loves me so much that he's just going to stand in the, in the, uh, the front yard of my little cootie and not make any sound to figure out how long it is that I'm going to wake up to the fact that he's there. This is a major kind of training that we can't give each other in the Sangha because we've got these computers and whatnot long distance. But if you have relationship with people, this is one of the things that we can do to wake things up. Okay. Another example, just off the side, there is um, a practice, I think that it's Zen with Zen rock gardens and whatnot, but the idea is to take several stones in successively smaller sizes and stack them one on top of each other so that they balance directly that have seven stones in a row. Have you ever seen such a thing like that? It, it takes a delicate balance, okay? Yeah. So, while I was a monk visiting a monk's conference, I had seen that somebody had done one of those at um, Bhavana Society where uh, Bhante Gunaratana uh, is the abbot. 
And so I decided to play a trick on him. So I piled another stone on top. And then just on top of that, I put another stone on. And I got nine of them listed. I mean, that was quite a feat to get nine of them up there. Guess what? Two hours later, I come back. It's back to seven. Somebody noticed. Congratulations for them. They, I mean, to, to put that back to seven required a whole lot of stuff. I mean, first they noticed it. Number two, they noticed that the correct number is seven, not nine. So they actually counted to stones. And so somebody had woke up. <laughs> um, another one that Anchan Ho would do would be that when I was standing around this, say in public, perhaps it was nor normally this happened in a ceremony or, or something where there was a lot of people at the what, a Buddha day. And I would be doing anything standing, uh, milling around. There's a lot of milling around that's done, sometimes in conversation and whatnot. And all of a sudden I hear this whisper in my ear and I knew that it had Achan Po, that he would walk past me and say something and then keep on walking almost as if to show that he could sneak up on me because i was not paying attention to my surroundings okay and so the, one of the things that he would say would be ta 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 he just you know can you imagine you're just standing there doing maybe waiting for a train or waiting for the meal or whatever's happening. All of a sudden, somebody comes and whispers right in your ear, ta ta ta, and then walks off. And you didn't know he'd come up. Well, I, I begin to uh, be, become more alert. I mean, this is actually part of the waking up process that we can gain from value from. Um, having a, a spiritual friend around who is just, you know, pulling little surprises and walking into the room and see how long it takes you to recognize that they're in the room. The way that I do it with Kitty, because she's uh, she's gotten quite sophisticated. She knows that I'm in the room, but she's not about to let me know that I'm in the room. And so what I do is I come into the room and I'll stand there waiting for her to know that I'm in the room and then I'll take one more step. And normally that's when she'll smile or then she'll know that I'm in the room. But if I uh, if she doesn't recognize it, then I'll take another step. Now, the first time that this happened, I was actually able to walk right up to her a couple of years ago or three, four years ago and take her cell phone right out of her hand because she was so interested in the cell phone that she wasn't paying attention to the fact that I was standing there close enough to be able to take it from her. So I can't, I have not been able to take her cell phone away from her now for months and months and months and months, which is great because that means that she's awake now. She's beginning to wake up. And so this is what we mean by wakefulness. And most of us have the idea of mindfulness or um, waking up has to do with only when we're sitting in meditation. Like mindfulness practice um, that they that they teach at universities once a week on Monday nights, everybody gets together and practices uh, mindfulness, mindfulness-based structure reduction and whatever like that. But one of the points 
is, yeah. is that that kind of practice is just one of many kinds of practice that we can use to help us to wake up. Robert, you got a question. I see your hand waving in the air. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> um, it's actually very synchronistic you bring this up because Sandra and I were just on a walk and we kept like every now and then surprising each other with a poke or a tickle or something like that, you know, and it was this exact same thing, but without the spiritual aspect, it was just kind of having fun, you know? It, no, you cannot but have the spiritual aspect in it. <laughs> <laughs> that in fact, that's one of the things about new relationships and lovers, and that I still do that, and exact same thing with Tan. I poke her. <laughs> Uh, I poke her off with it, especially if I can sneak up to poker. <laughs> she doesn't know that I'm there. Yeah, there, I, I gotta watch like, <laughs> There's a Thai language word that she uses, and that is tuk jibe mut. And it's kind of a, a, a surprise. Okay. There are other um, examples of this. One of them would be a lightning and thunderstorm to where the lightning is very, very close. Uh, like a, uh, the thunder comes a second after the lightning. And that means that it's about, uh, what, 300 yards or something like that. Uh, uh, so, uh, or a thousand feet. One second is 1,000 feet is basically um, how, how it goes. So uh, there was several years ago, there was a lightning flash that was so bright that every place around here was completely lit up. You mean I could not even tell which direction the lightning flash had come from because it was just bright. And that was immediately followed by the crack and there is a, and if you ever listen to light, uh, to thunder very uh, carefully, you can always hear there's a crack to it. It's not crack, it's crack. And that with the lightning and with that cur part of it, um, I was well prepared already mentally. And yet when the boom came from the lightning, Everybody else in the house was about two feet off the ground, including the dogs. Everybody jumped. <laughs> and I'm sitting here watching the show. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so this is a quality of, of mindfulness or of sati is to wake up quickly to what's going on around us so that we can be prepared for it, that we don't have to have big, big surprises like crashing our car into something or having lightning uh, uh, thunder go off it with a great big surprise. That this was what Achan Cha, uh, excuse me, Achan Po's real training was about, was that quality of 
wake up and be here in your surroundings to wake up into your senses so that you can see and you can hear and you can feel and you can sense things. And that one of the qualities that that's had. Yes, go ahead, Yusuf. Uh, yeah, I, so there's just some things that are coming up for me. I just wanted to share. Um, and uh, so the first thing is this is making me think of um, different uh, childhood games or kind of in the in the in the sense of uh, pr having pranks or tricking each other, mm -hmm. um, trying to get each other's attention in different ways. And like Robert, your example of poking is one of them, you know, where you tap it's... them on one side and you go to the other side or you, you try to make them look at something. Um, and then it's like, I got you. I made you do something. You are not aware enough to, to catch this. And so it's kind of like a, a competition and it's also like a, a friendly, like a way of building friendship that I think sometimes, you know, children do, they, they create a lot of variants on their own. And so I, it was just making me think of that. And I wonder how it, how it might be related. Yes, absolutely. I would say, in fact, that the kids who play those kind of games from the time that they're able to walk up until in their teenage, they're the ones who make the best musicians, they're the ones who make the best martial artists, they're the ones who make the best photographers, they're the ones who make the best snipers. All kinds of traits can happen because we've got fast reaction time. Well, we know. That's and if we play game, if, uh, the games that we play when we were really little kids, if we don't play those kind of games, then that means that it's very, very difficult also for that kind of person to develop mindfulness as a skill. But in fact, that's what we were doing as kids. We were developing that uh, as a skill. And there's so many of them. One of them is that we call slap hands to where I hold my hands down and you hold your hands up on top of it. And I'm going to try to see if I can uh, quickly maneuver so that I can hit your hand. Another one is taking money that you're going to drop. And the guy's got his fingers there. And when that bill drops, can he can he react fast enough to catch it up? <laughs> this is actually the skill of reaction time. Now, reaction time, actually, they, they've been measuring it for a long time. The first time that I ever had my reaction time measured was about 1980, 81, something about that time frame. And that I, um, I was actually embarrassed because I was so slow. I mean, I'd been a meditator for five or more years by that time. And so uh, the reaction time was quite slow. Now they have those kind of things on the internet, the way that they operate it, rather than a mechanical machine, the way that I had it. But um, the way that they operate it now is, is that they, uh, there are websites for reaction time. The, the screen will be red. And then as soon as it turns green, you click the mouse. And the software will measure the difference between the time that the screen turns green and the time you click it with the mouse. And that the average is about 250 milliseconds. Most people are between 300 and 250 milliseconds. The down of about 200 milliseconds is what they uh, refer to on their scorecard as black belt karate. And then down to 180. 180 milliseconds, they list as um, uh, Olympic gold medal champion. 
status. Okay, world class is down at about 180, the reaction time. One of the questions is, where did that re responsive reaction time come from? It came from practice of sports. That's where it comes from. But there are other ways of developing that reaction time. The, for instance, how long does it take for you to wake up to how uh, close Achan Po is? And by the way, I got to tell you, I have reversed that with him on at least one occasion. I was able to get so close to him that I actually got a kind of a startle reaction out of him. I was able to get that close. Now, to be honest with you, I Oh, let's see. Oh, are you there? Looks like connection issues. He'll probably rejoin. Might just take like a minute. Hello, guys. That was trash. <laughs> anyway, I was telling a story uh, about a time. This was probably about 10 years ago. And Achan Po was sitting in the sala. The way that the sala is arranged at what going low is uh, such that it's an open sala, and the monks stay uh, sit at one end. But it's it's constant. Uh, like on a balcony here, and I'm sitting like this, and he and I come up to him from behind, while he is talking with people. I can take one more step, and then he's talking to more people, and I take one more step, and then he's talking to people, and I take another step, and now I'm within two feet of him. And then he takes a drink of water, and that's when I come right up to him. And so I'm about right here, which means that now he only has to look. And there I am. And he and, and he just did this. And the thing was, was so interesting because what he did was he, he took the glass down and he smiled. He just moved his head slowly and just smiled <laughs> because he, he must he might have been aware that I was behind him for quite a while. But he didn't turn around until I was almost in his face. <laughs> okay, so uh, these are kind of things that that monks can do without poking or teasing. That in fact, one of the rules is is that you cannot hide a monk's um, articles. That 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 would be a no-no. That you can't move his stuff around with lovers. Lovers will do that kind of thing from time to time without too much. But with the monks, they, they don't do that. They, they, these kinds of tricks have to be quite subtle. And so uh, um, passing by and making a comment or things like this is. Zach seems to be calling. Let's see if we can get him in. 
Hello, Zach. Welcome. Good to be here. Hi, Zach. Hello. Okay, Zach. So, Zach, we've been talking about mindfulness, and I have been talking about the th kinds of things that we can do in the physical world that can help us with uh, waking up quickly and waking up uh, uh, suddenly. Using the examples of uh, being aware of the kinds of things that are going on around us. One of the things that I would mention right now that I just heard, I've got a favorite cuckoo Do you hear him? Do you hear him? Go, 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 go. <laughs> got my own turkey, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> So being aware of our surroundings, being aware of the things that are going on, for instance, normally when we're working on the laptop or the, uh, the PC or the cell phone or whatever, we get completely absorbed into it. Rather than having a few mind moments scattered around that we come back to the senses other than the primary sense that we're like with the with the cell phone, we get involved with just watching the cell phone and just listening to the cell phone rather than being aware that we are watching and listening to a cell phone. There's a difference. One is How do you deal with the cell phone and the other one, we're not in the cell phone. We're just watching the cell phone while we're experiencing all kinds of other things. So this has to do then with with sati is actually the waking up into our senses in the here now, as opposed to merely just waking up to what the mind is doing, which is the way that we're practicing on upon a sati is just to wake up that way, but also to wake up into the senses. This is a uh, part of the reason why the body becomes so important in Anapanasati, is what is the body doing? What is the body doing with the hand? How does the hand feel? Normally what happens with our Western society through absent-mindedness that when we pick up an object, it's the object that we're paying attention to. Instead, what we're going to do is pay attention to what the fingers are doing with the object. What are the sensory feelings of the object? So we come very, very much into the body. So when we're reaching for something, we can slow that motion down, open the hand and grasp. And then when we let it go like this, what was the last touch that we had before we let, let that go? That's something to remember when we're putting something down. What was the last piece of our body that touched that object? Was it this inside part of the small finger? Was it this part of the thumb? What part of the body was it that actually touched the object last as we set it down and then we withdraw our hand? These are ways of uh, practicing mindfulness moment by moment by watching what your hands are doing watching what your body is doing yes go ahead Raul. hey um so i got a tattoo yesterday and i was really like 
it, it, it was painful. So I was trying like, okay, let's see what, what my body feels. And it, well, it was pain. Like it really was pain. Like, and I was trying not to see where she was tattooed when my, where my friend was, was pinching. But I started to feel like all around it, the tattoo was here, just here. And I started to feel here and then here and here. So, so I don't know, like when pain comes, it's not easy to practice. Like, like it's really not that easy to practice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasu would say just the opposite of that. He would call this an opportunity to practice. Now, when we're talking about an opportunity to practice, um, basically what that means is that we've already got a practice uh, started, that this is why we're already having had some skills developed so that one of the skills we begin to have is beginning to have a different attitude about the bodily sensations that we have that our society has taught us that strong bodily sensations are one, not to be liked, number two, potentially dangerous in the long term, a great big deal, and something that we should do something to avoid by taking some drastic action, like going to the pharmacy to buy some medicine or whatever, like that, okay? pain is a big deal in our society. Why is it such a big deal in our society? Is because people who deal with other people's pain can make a lot of money off of it because people just don't like pain. And in fact, that's why we call it pain is because we don't like it. But what we're practicing here with mindfulness is not necessarily the pain itself, but to begin to look at, I don't like it. It's the, the feeling of, I don't like it. That is what causes it to be pain. Other than that, pain can be described as piercing, throbbing, acute, chronic. It can be described as sharp, uh, itchy, but all of those words are kind of neutral. What you're using is the word pain, which means you really don't like it and that you're uh, so wrapped up in the feeling of the pain that you're not mindful of it because in fact, we want to avoid it. That another way of handling those kinds of sensations is first off, stop calling them pain and start recognizing that I just don't like it. And then we can say, well, wait a minute, maybe this, this sensation that I've got is a messenger. What is it trying to tell me? An example of that would be the kid who has broken his arm. It's in a cast. Three weeks into it, it's mending, and he wants to play with his fingers. So by playing with his fingers and doing things and living his life normally while he's got his arm in the cast and the, and the bone is hurting. And what is that bone's message? 
The message is, hey, man, I'm trying to heal here. Will you leave me alone for a while? <laughs> All right. So there's some pains that actually have a message to it. And that the question is, how are we going to respond to the message? Are we actually going to hear the message or are we going to kill the messenger? Because that's normally what happens when we get a message that we don't like. We blame the guy who delivered the message. <laughs> and so you don't like this sensation instead of learning from it. So here's what we can do to learn from it is, is that we can start paying attention to it in the sense that can we in fact maneuver it mindfully? If, if, for example, anxiety that we can feel in the chest area around here, can as we breathe into it, can we make it expand and contract? Can we make it move up and down as we're breathing? Can we make it move over to one side or the other? And by doing this, number one, we're, making, we're becoming friendly with it. Number two, we're really paying attention to it and uh, bringing it close. And number three, we're not in aversion to it. So this is a way of, of going that we naturally fall into aversion. That is instinctual. But we don't have to fall into aversion for it and call it pain and not like it and try to get rid of it. We can inspect instead uh, um, experience it. Um, Clint, you had a question. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how do you deal with uh, boredom? I guess kind of similar to pain, but like um, you were mentioning that exercise where you just kind of like pick something up and then like you release your fingers. Uh, not no disrespect, but it sounds a little boring. Like how can you learn to enjoy something like that or uh, kind of um, like into the process of like waking up? Well, again, there's two kinds of boredom. The kind of boredom that is uh, boredom because we're bored and we'll say like, Mom, I'm bored and I want something to do. Or we can have boredom mindfully in the sense of waking up to the boredom to recognize that basically what boredom actually is, is that it's restlessness, that we're not satisfied with the way things are in this moment. And gosh, there is a very easy, easy solution to boredom. And that is take a deep breath and say, wow, this is a wonderful moment right now. Yeah. I've got a turkey to baste here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we recognize that boredom is nothing but restlessness, which means dissatisfaction with the way things are right now. And there's other ways that we can deal with that, waking up to boredom and recognizing that, oh, I've got a body to play with here. I've got a, a, a human body. I mean, what a marvelous toy. Can, can I comment on, on that? Go ahead. Yeah, Robert, yeah. go ahead. Okay, thanks. Um, a couple things. One is boredom is a great opportunity to take some deep breaths, you know, that's and really enjoy it. You know, that's a great time to do that. But two, another great way of dealing with pain without actually dealing with quote unquote pain is the cold or the heat, you know, you know, especially the cold. If it's really cold out, and it's November right now, so for most of you, it's getting pretty cold, go outside and say, hey, this isn't actually bad. It's just a sensation. 
you know, and I'm choosing to say, oh, it's bad, it's cold, but it might be cold, but you can be fine with it. Like, I love the cold. It's like a cop, cup of coffee in the morning. You know, it's 20, 30 degrees out. You go out, you get energized. It's like, yeah, you know, you can relate to that totally different way, totally more wholesome. Wow, and same with pain. Good. You could say pain is giving you sati. It's waking you up, right? It's making you more alert, more in the moment. Yeah, it's like, exactly. yeah, it's giving me some energy right now, you know? <laughs> um, <I'm, laughs> um, that, that reminds me. This, this happened many, many years ago before Asia. And in fact, this was kind of the prelude to Asia. And I was living in Michigan. I uh, had a Dodge van that needed a head job. So I'm doing a head job out in the parking lot uh, or at the driveway with all the tools. And it's snowing and it's cold. This is February in uh, uh, Michigan. And while uh, I was working on that that truck, busting my knuckles, freezing and all of that kind of stuff, I kind of got a plan in mind that I'm getting out of here. Did not like the cold. And so after I got the uh, the valves ground and, and had the head put back on, I got into that van and I drove to California. <laughs> to get out of that cold. <laughs> and in the process, I harmed, did a great deal of harm to myself and a great deal of harm to others. That in fact, to be honest with you, after I got to California, I got lonely because California girls were not what I was expecting. And so I called my old girlfriends in Michigan, invite them to come live. Both of them had to sell a house. <laughs> and their teenage kids did not like the fact that I had them move from uh, Michigan to California just because I didn't like cold weather. <laughs> and so fast forward now and that um, going to live as a monk in North Carolina, I know that North Carolina, it's, um, there's kind of a snow line there to where uh, in Charlotte, that area, doesn't snow very often. But by the time you get to High Point up to Greensboro and into Raleigh, it snows regularly. And I knew that I was going to go into that cold weather. So this time with that thought in mind, my idea was that I'm going to go live in, in North Carolina in, uh, in cold winter weather, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to have it. No problems. And so I do uh, that. And so I've actually got a couple of photos. One of the photos is uh, in the wintertime, we're in um, Rhode Island. And it's a, a photo with two Sri Lankan monks and a Lao monk and myself. And the Sri Lankan monks are just dressed to the hilt. They've got big old heavy coats on and they've got great big bundles and scarves on and stocks on their sandals and all of that kind of stuff. And here I'm standing out there in the weather, I'm in sandals with no socks, no coat and everything. I also remember on one occasion that we had a, a meeting, uh, uh, a weekly meditation group. And after the, that was over, I was out in the yard 
talking to some a few of the students and as I uh, as we look on because there was a thermometer there it was nine degrees nine oh. degrees Fahrenheit in uh, uh, Green Greensboro North Carolina and they were all bundled up and wanted to go get in their car and go home and I'm standing here with the robe open barefoot <laughs> standing on the concrete knowing that i'm a champion because i can handle it now it's a mental attitude and so yes cold go if you've got cold go play with it it's a toy to play with how does the body feel that in fact this is very common in the tibetan tradition that there is one of the ceremonies to where the monks will take their robes and dip it into ice cold water and then put it back on and sit there to dry the robe. Their job is wow. to dry that robe. And you and I've seen uh, monks like that. Uh, not it was actually in, in northeast Thailand, uh, but Tibetans are the ones who were famous for it. And you can see the steam coming off of the robe. That it gets hot and uh, the, the steam will, will come off the robe and it, and it will dry. But that takes a mind state that is different than the shivering, oh, I'm cold and I don't like this and I'll get over this ceremony somehow or another. You know, no, this was, <clears throat> I've got this. <laughs> okay, Robert, what? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Um, so running is an interesting kind of middle ground. Uh, because if you're doing long distance running, it, it's a great way of cultivating that mindset. If I can do this no matter what, like I've run a marathon before and that really cultivates that no matter what you put one foot in front of the other. And aren't you a champion for being able to do that? And that's mm -hmm. part of the power of running. But the flip side is you're also getting these endorphins. So you're also getting a really nice natural high from the endorphins, right? So you're getting rewarded which is encouraging the champion's attitude further. So it's kind of an interesting virtuous cycle. And I would imagine if you're getting dopamine from uh, being able to be outside in the cold no matter what, that might be similar to the endorphins in some sense, where it can become this virtuous cycle of wholesome, aren't I a lion? Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly the way that we're looking at it is, is that I'm a lion. I can handle that pain. I can handle that cold. That cold is nothing to me. I can handle that pain. That broken arm is nothing to me. It's just a message from that broken arm. Say, hold still, let me heal. <laughs> or it's just a mosquito bite. I don't have to scratch it. I can take and put some ointment on it. I can take care of the body rather than like that. Right. But in fact, as one of the things that's quite interesting is, is that in Thailand, the Thai people they teach their children this to cut their fingernails very, very short, very, very short so that they do not protrude outside. But I was raised in a society where fingernails were part of your uh, tools, your hand tools. <laughs> you can't pick up a penny or things like that without fingernails. You can't pull a hair out without the fingernails. If you don't have fingernails, there's a whole lot of stuff that you can't do. 
<laughs> but one of the things about fingernails is that if you do, if you use those fingernails mindlessly, you can scratch yourself and cause your body a whole lot of damage by scratching mosquito bites and doing all kinds of things. So uh, that would be one thing then to uh, consider that when you have fingernails, be mindful of those fingernails. Be mindful of what they do. Be mindful of the people that you touch, because sometimes the fingernails, they, they feel only their fingernail. They don't feel the, the touch of your finger. So uh, becoming aware of the body in many, many ways and beginning to use it as a marvelous um, thing to be investigated rather than a um, let us say, uh, a necessary evil. And many of us consider the human body as some, a necessary evil, that you'd be better off without the body if you could somehow fly magically through the air and, and whatnot like that, or if I were a fly on the wall, and many, many kinds of things to discount the body rather than uh, be in the reality of that the, that the human body is a marvelous, complex, but imperfect machine. And oh. that it is a marvelous toy to play with, to keep looking at it, to keep remembering to pay attention to what the body is doing. <clears throat> this is, in fact, uh, the foundation <clears throat> of our practice is to use the mind to pay attention to the body. Originally, the question that uh, um, Kishan asked was about the four foundations of mindfulness. Well, we have been for quite a long time talking about the mindfulness of coming into the senses, but the senses are associated with the body. So mindfulness of the body itself is the foundation of the practice. Because if we can become mindful of what the body is doing, that means that we're developing the mind. So we use the mind to control the body, and by being able to use the mind to control the body, we're actually able to control both of them, the mind and the body. And so this is the way that we begin to practice is practicing to control the mind so that we control the body by uh, doing that with our breathing. But we've been giving a whole lot of other stuff along with that uh, in this particular talk. Robert, go ahead. Sure. So do you recommend to your students that they do, you know, yoga, martial arts, dance, something like that? Or do they ever do that and then report back to you on using sati in those contexts? Because that would be really interesting to hear. what Yes, I, I would not recommend people go and do anything much other than <laughs> whatever you're going to do, do it mindfully. But people do, and I have too. In fact, one of my good friends, I haven't heard him from, from a while, and I actually, I, I fear that he's dead now. Uh, his name is Greg. Greg was um, a, a medic in the Marines in Vietnam. And he was a martial artist. He actually, he was one of the guys who, when Vietnam was over, he didn't go back to the U.S., there is a whole lot of, of groups of people called MAIs, missing in action. 
that's a whole lot better term to use than over the hill. But Greg was one of the over the hill dudes. I think he he did his tour of service, but he he wound up living mostly in Thailand and also in Singapore. And he was deeply into martial arts. And so we were talking a lot about martial arts and how similar the, the, the training of martial arts is to the training of a monk. Because the whole quality of becoming a good martial artist is to pay attention to the body. And so they've got actually uh, martial artists, good martial artists, Fourth Dan, that kind of guy, uh, even black belts. They have a mindfulness of the body that uh, is developed through the years of that. That means they don't have to do that if they start meditating after years of, of martial arts practice. Because it's much easier because they're already much attuned to the body. They're paying attention to their body. They're paying attention to, in fact, we're talking about martial artists here. They know what pain is because they investigate it. Some of them will still call it pain, but the word pain has now changed its meaning. For you, Raul, I want you to hear the word pain as a word you use when you don't like something. And we can have the word sensation instead. Now, people who do sports, dance, martial artists, uh, they do have to deal with bodily sensations um, that are generally unpleasant or they don't like it. This is a good opportunity for practicing mindfulness, is recognizing what the body is doing. So, yes, I would say that if someone, Robert, who is involved with that, Use it as a tool. Use it as a method for waking up. Rather than, in other words, if uh, someone is in a dance class, instead of just being there for learning how to dance, really paying attention to learning what the body is doing. Learning about the body from the inside of the body rather than from the outside of the body. You know, in dance classes, especially the ones that are very sophisticated, like uh, ballet, they have a whole wall full of mirrors as if the sight of what the dance is is most important. And so the, the, the dancers will be looking at the mirrors to see where their body is rather than experiencing the body from the inside of where the body postures are. Go ahead, Robert. So one um, thing just to emphasize, um, uh, Rulaz, is it Rulaz or Raul? Oh, yeah, Raul, Raul, Raul. Oh, I was just okay. going to go get my, my dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, is the, the phrase opportunity for practice. And I know if I'm going through some difficult little moment or whatnot, you know, I, I use that as a mantra. You know, this is an opportunity for practice. And then I start practicing and that's really great. And so I recommend like if you're going through physical pain, you know, bring up that mantra, you know, this is an opportunity for practice. Say that to yourself and then practice, you know, and it's really great. I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Robert. Right. So um, the whole quality right of two minutes. The whole quality then of this practice that we're doing is the practice of waking up. 
the practice of being in the present moment, the practice of being with the body is the way to learn to do this. This is why we call Anapanasati is because there's one thing that the body is doing, no matter how still you are, regardless of how uh, you're not doing anything. One of the things you will continue to do is pump your heart, digest your food and breathe. That's just natural body functions. And those natural body functions happen 24 hours a day. If your body stopped digesting food in the night, how could it possibly do that? Because it's a chemical reaction in there, you know. You're going to say, okay, you're asleep now. All of the acid goes over here and all the food goes over here. And you guys have to stay separated until I wake up in the morning. No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> and so the, uh, the body's movement that digests the food continues on. The same thing also is that when you're asleep, the body continues to move in various postures. If you've ever seen high speed uh, uh, film uh, of, of someone sleeping, you can see that they're all over the bed. Or another one, if you don't have uh, a high speed film to watch yourself sleep, sleep with a child. <laughs> because uh, Kitty, she's just all over the bed while she's sleeping and so uh this is quite common so the body is moving the heart is pumping and we're breathing but one of the qualities of the breathing is is that we do have some control over it to where the heart rate does not that was one of the things that i was quite curious about uh many many years ago is why the buddha didn't have mindfulness of heart rate the answer is because you can't control it, but you can get yourself still enough to where you can hear it. I mean, you can monitor your heartbeat right now. You can just start paying attention to it. It's very subtle, but if you pay attention to it, there it is. However, you can't control it, not directly. Maybe you can get up and run around the room so that you can speed it up. But generally, we can't control the breath. Or we can't control the heartbeat, but we can control the breathing. And that's why we use breathing is because it can be controlled. Because this is a matter of taking control of our life. And we, if we can't even control our breathing and control our mind to stay focused on the breathing, then the harder work we're not going to be ready for. Go ahead, Robert. So I've heard, so I've never really heard of ancient texts discussing the heartbeat. Um, I do know that I believe they used to believe that the mind was actually located in the chest and that was kind of, you know, where the soul was and that sort of a thing. But do they ever talk about, um, well, that's where your feelings are when you feel anxiety, where do you feel it? Right there. Oh, that's why, I mean, uh, when, when you, when you are lovesick, and unrequited love, where do you feel and what do you feel? You feel an emptiness deep inside, not up here. It's not a ment it's mental, but it's not a brain. In fact, a brain itself does not have very many um, sense touch neurons. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so, but go as ahead. Far, so as far as the heartbeat, is that ever discussed? in the, the ancient texts. Like I, I once took a class in traditional Indian medicine. They never discussed this. 
Um, and it's just a part of every life is that heartbeat. So I'm interested to hear, did they ever discuss this maybe in the suttas or something like that? That's the whole point is, no, this is not something that can be controlled and is therefore of no value in Satipatthana. No value in the four foundations of mindfulness. Breathing is because it can be controlled. Heartbeat, you can't control it. Therefore, this is not part of the practice. Now, if we can learn to control the breath, and by doing the controlling of the breath, we also can control the mind. That means that now we can begin to gather up the skills that we need to learn to control the way we feel. And this is uh, the point then is, is that Vedana, even though it in the Satipatthana, it says body, feeling, mind and mind's objects, they're just set uh, going an old format. The, the real issue is, is that if you can't control the mind and the body or when you are able to control them, then you have a chance of being able to control the feelings also. In other words, we're actually practicing feeling comfortable in the body. Yeah, it's now, interesting. I know, go ahead. Thank you. Um, it's interesting because yoga has that effect, right? Yoga is known for having a very positive effect on one's mental state. And it's essentially a body and breathing, um, you know, meditation, you know, where you're focusing on the breath and the body and getting them in sync. Um, so it is interesting how there's that connection there to the mind and the mind's objects. But I would wonder, I know part of the practice, the way that you teach it, is to focus on changing the mind's objects. So, you know, if you're in a bad situation, leave, you know, and then the mind starts to clear up. This is kind of like what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says in the Anapanasati for serious beginners is first, you know, go to the woods, you know, get into a nice environment that alters the mind's objects. Then that alters the mind and that would alter the feelings, which might then alter the body. So is that yeah. kind of the idea? Yeah. Yes. That's why I recommend it too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go to the forest, go to the trees. Go talk to the trees. If they talk back, go to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, the getting into the correct environment, yes, but the real environment that we're looking for is the mental environment. So it's good for the beginner to get into a good physical environment to help that mental environment. We need that. This is the, uh, the seclusion stage. It's like when you first walk into the gym, you've never done any um, uh, weightlifting before in your life. You don't go over to the great big uh, barbells and start a bench pressing. 200 kilos. You just don't do that. <laughs> no one does, in fact. 200 kilos, maybe 200 pounds, or maybe 100 kilos. That's that's quite a lot. 100 kilos, that's what? 220 pounds. So no one can do that. We start with five kilos. And we do the reps over and over and over and over again to build up those physical muscles. We're also going to be doing Anapanasati over and over and over again with very, very small amounts of weight. Like we got no place to go. We got nothing to do. We got the body relaxed. We're in a beautiful surrounding. And we still are having negative unwholesome thoughts. 
<laughs> ah, that's really amazing. Why did we bring all of that crap in there with us when, in fact, we're in a paradise and we don't want to enjoy our paradise. We want to crap on it by thinking about something that's not paradisical. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, this is another great thing that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa says in that book is that by being in seclusion, your morality, your sila is perfected automatically. Automatically. Yeah, automatically. Right. So therefore, you know, if you're acting in a way that is not causing any dukkha for anyone, you know, except maybe you stub your toe every now <laughs> by accident, but, you know, you're going to um, start your mind will clear. You yes. know, getting into negative entanglements, this or that. Well, here's the point. When you stub your toe, are you also going to stub your mind? No. Yeah. If you stub <laughs> your toe, that means that we were not mindfulness long enough to kick something with our toe, and then we call it pain. We don't like it. And we're stubbing our mental toe then. Right. So... The first thing that we need to do is practice getting a self away from toe stubbing completely so that we don't stub our toes mentally. Sure. And then we're practicing to get the mind in a good state. By doing so, that's where we use wholesome thoughts. The wholesome thoughts then, remembering to have wholesome thoughts over and over again, we literally begin to talk ourselves into feeling good. I mean, there's um, people would just go around and have um, people talk to me and they says, oh, I've got anxiety. Well, where did the anxiety come from? It's not there all the time. When does anxiety occur? Generally, anxiety occurs because of some event. Like you got a bill in the mail or the cops show up. You know, those are times of points of anxiety. But guess what? Mail arrives more often, not from the post office, but from our own <clears throat> mental connections. So we literally talk ourselves into anxiety. If we talk ourselves into anxiety, that means that we can, in fact, talk ourselves out of anxiety. This is the where we start with the mindfulness of the body and then the feelings. We start paying attention to how we feel. Do we actually like things or not? Are we able to control that liking and not liking? And if we're able to control the liking, part of that comes into the feeling of safety, the feeling of security, the feeling of comfort, and the feeling of satisfaction. And so these are words that we can actually use in our wholesome language to talk to ourselves, to get ourselves into that state of comfortable and safe, secure, and then we can practice the satisfaction. If you're uncomfortable, you're not going to be satisfied. If you're unsafe, you're not going to be satisfied. So comfortable and safe safe and secure and easy that's the mind state that we are the uh, the physical surroundings and the mind state that we want to get ourselves into so that we can practice feeling like we can feel safe and secure and comfortable and satisfied once we do that over and over again we begin to add on the feeling of i've got this i can do this the feeling of satisfaction 
turns into the feeling of success. And you become a successful human being in that moment. Go ahead, Robert. So it's really interesting how this aligns with Aristotle, you know, because uh, Aristotle said that the key Where do to you be- think he got his material anyway? <laughs> I don't know, but maybe he figured it out. <laughs> no, but- well, that's that's quite possible. But there is um, more and more research done that shows that uh, there was a huge, huge, much greater than we would expect connection between Greece and India, that they were directly interrelated, that that actually is only about a three-week walk. Hmm. There's not that much difference. Wow. You, have to, you have to watch where you're going, but uh, <laughs> um, there is, in fact, um, uh, quite evidence that, in fact, there is a particular word uh, that the that the ancient Indians used for the Greeks, that ancient word that they used had to do with uh, Ionian, but mm. I forgot exactly how the uh, uh, Indians pronounced that word. But but that word is actually in the suttas. There are monks that went to Sri Lanka uh, on one occasion about 200, maybe 100 BC. Sri Lankan has a document that, that 30,000 Greeks showed up in Sri Lanka wow. with, a, with a master monk who had come from Greece. Wow. Okay, so there was huge connection. We also know that Asok, who uh, was the emperor, that actually you could say that the, without the Greek influence, Asok would have never completely taken over all of India, that it was actually, this was the time, if you look at the times, you see Alexander the Great coincided in his lifetime with a soap. Hmm. That uh, um, we're talking about the, the time period of 300 BC, which is about the time of Aristotle. Right. So the possibility that Aristotle had uh, the knowledge of the Buddha is possibly quite high. The likelihood of him not having anything about it and figuring it all out by himself through his own tradition with um, uh, Plato and Socrates, um, you could say, know that the Greeks were stumbling around in spirituality just like the Indians were. Hmm. And so there was direct major connections. There's also a group uh, in Alexandria where we get our word therapy. And that was the the Theraputa. Now the Theraputa that were uh, in Alexandria at this time, they wore all white robes together. Everyone practiced medicine, that these were healers and medicine practitioners. Well, guess what? Um, the Theraputa, the word put, is a word to speak. And the Theravada, or the teachings of the elders, it's the same word. And these guys were known in Alexandria about 100, 200 BC, that period of time, there were Theravada monks in, uh, as an organized group, not just one monk wandering around, but a whole organization of them. So there are strong, strong connections between uh, the Mediterranean and India and the likelihood of um, 
Buddhism being the vehicle for that is quite high. This is also, by the way, the time when um, uh, statues of the Buddha started showing up. In the ancient times of the Buddha, there was the wheel, the Dhamma Chakra, there was the Bodhi leaf, and then the picture of the tree with an empty seat under it. These were the three um, icons of Buddhism. But now the icons of Buddhism is a Buddha Rupa, a statue of a sitting Buddha. That's Greek. And you can see a lot of the Greek influence in some of the statuary. That in fact, curly hair, mustaches, and that kind of stuff are very Greek oriented, and yet many monks would be like that in the old statues that we found, the old icon. So back to Aristotle. I guess I think we kind of have an idea of the influence that he had, the Stoics. There's many of the Greek groups from that 500 BC uh, to 100 AD that looks like that it had a lot of Buddhist connections to it. Uh, a slightly different connection would be, what about Jesus? Was Jesus a Buddha dude? But Bhikkhu Buddhadasa's point on that was the one that you made about Aristotle, and that is, is that the Dhamma was available to anyone, that the Buddha stumbled on uh, an old path, that he didn't invent anything. He just rediscovered something that's already there within the human psyche. Well, if the Buddha could figure it out, so could Jesus. But that discounts the fact that these teachings of the Buddha were already widespread in that Mediterranean area. And so naturally, Jesus could have been exposed to the teachings of the Buddha also. But let's get back to the point that we were talking about, about the Satipatthana or the four foundations of mindfulness. Basically, the way that we can look at this is, is that the correct practice is, is working with the mind to get the body awakened, alive, tingly alive, vibrantly alive, working with the feeling so that we feel relaxed, we feel satisfied, we feel safe and secure, and we feel uh, like a winner. When we get the mind that's fit for work like that, then that means that we can pay attention to the things that we actually need to be paying attention to, which is actually now the Dhammanupassana. In the beginning, when students are beginning to practice, their Dhammanupassana or their, uh, the objects of the mind are a mixture of wholesome and unwholesome, back and forth. A lot of the students say that the mind is unwholesome all the time, but that's not possible. That when the mind is unwholesome all the time, that's normally a sign for suicidal behavior, maybe an aneurysm or a heart attack or something like that. that people just get themselves very, very heavy. But we're a mixture. In fact, uh, Keyshawn and I were just talking about this. There was a video that I saw recently on YouTube that reminded me of an old story that I'd heard a long time ago. And that is, imagine a cup of water or a coffee cup like this. When the coffee cup is full of coffee, how much does it weigh? Eight ounces, six ounces, something like that. It depends upon the size of the cup. 
but how long does the cup uh, have to stay in the hand before it gets heavy? What does the word heavy mean? We can use uh, the word heavy only in the sense of um, uh, science and weights and measurements and scales and things like that. But really, the word heavy has to mean that it's hard to endure. It's hard to hold. And so holding the coffee cup for one minute is okay. But holding the coffee cup up for 10 minutes, it gets heavy. Holding the cup up like this for an hour, and it gets really heavy. And what happens to the arm? It gets sore and it gets tired. Okay, but I can set the cup down and then my arm can relax. Well, if we carry negative thoughts in the mind and have one, let us say we had an argument with someone or we got a, a trash email, let us say that we got insulted on Reddit. And we don't answer, but we think about it and we think about it and we think about it. Well, that insult on Reddit was like a coffee cup. It doesn't weigh very much until we start thinking about it over and over and over and over and over again. We carry that weight around and it gets heavy. Think about how many things that you carry around in your mind that get heavy because you're thinking about them. You're carrying things around. When you stop carrying things around, then the mind can get really light. And so um, this whole idea of light versus heavy is, is that we are no longer, we're not always having heavy, unwholesome thoughts. If we did, they would kill us. Just like the arm would atrophy if we held, if we held a coffee cup up for a long period of time. In fact, they do that kind of practice in India. I have seen guys who stand all the time. He winds up not standing. He, in fact, has a kind of a swing that's suspended. And he's leaning on the swing, but at least he's standing up. Or the other one is to hold your hand in the air. How long can you hold your hand up? Can you hold your hand up 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? An hour, two hours, four hours, all day. <laughs> Wake up in the morning, hold your hand up in the morning. That, Keep that's it up actually in the air all day long. And then when you lay down in, at night, you're sleeping, you're laying down, but you're going to hold that arm in the air. How's it going to feel if you keep that arm held up in the air like that? Heavy. <laughs> it gets tired quickly. Well, if our arm, just holding our arm in the ear is like an unwholesome thought, then keeping that unwholesome thought in the mind over and over and over again is going to wear the mind out. It's going to uh, bring us down. It's going to uh, make us sick, in fact. We make ourselves sick with unwholesome thoughts. And we don't have to do that. All we have to do is remember that unwholesome thoughts are not useful. Why should I continue to think about that insult that was on Reddit over and over and over again? I don't like it. He was lying. He doesn't know me at all. Well, I'm going to tell him. Let me think of something really interesting to say that's going to get his goat, right? Guess what? That never happens. You can't get anybody's goat on uh, Reddit because he's already gotten yours <laughs> and you want your goat back and you'll do anything to get your goat back. And so you're dwelling on, I got to get my goat. I got to get my goat. I got to get my goat. 
and we destroy our present moment when we do that. This is why it's so important then for us to start paying attention to these objects that float in and out of the mind so that we can set that stuff down. And then we want to start paying attention to how we pick stuff up and how we set it back down. The arising and the passing away, every thought that comes, goes. Arising and passing away, that every thought about Reddit will be followed by another thought by Reddit, or it can pass away. Up to you. So this is actually the Satipatthana that, uh, that Kishan had asked about, and that is that we have the four foundations of mindfulness are the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects, and that we can pay attention to them in the sense of using the mind to pay attention to the body, using the mind to pay attention to the feelings, using the mind to pay attention to the mind's objects, but then also to use the mind to pay attention to the states of mind that we have. What's our attitude? What's our state of mind? Is the mind tired? Is it bright? Is it shiny? Is it mopey? Um, is it a victim? Is it a winner? Whatever the states of mind that you have, we need to start looking at that too because we have control over the state of mind that we're in. If we are a failure, we have the state of mind of a failure. If we are successful, we have the mind of, of success. Therefore, it's better to practice having mind objects of success so that the state of mind will be successful. I like when he's talking a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, Keyshawn, you're still on. Did I answer your question, or do you have any more questions about that? Yes, you answered my question. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, Robert. That was great. Thank you. I really enjoy also practicing sati with my eyes closed while you're talking. It's quite nice. I recommend it. Mm -hmm. Yes, playful sati. Yep. <laughs> Eric, it's really good to see you again. It's good to see you too. Really enjoy this. Being with all of our friends. It's nice. Ah. Yusuf, do you have anything? Um I, I don't really. Uh, it was a good good conversation to, to listen to. <laughs> okay, Zach. Do you have anything? I think Clinton's already yeah. gone. It's great to see everyone, and uh, thanks for letting me jump on partway through the convo. I'm glad that you joined. One of the things that we were talking about in the beginning was is that one of the qualities of mindfulness is that we need things to help us remember. Um, an example of that is for some people, uh, remembering to be Christ-like they will do um, a tattoo. They'll put a cross on their right forehand or maybe put the words L-O-V-E. Uh, Damarata, that's what you have right here, right? It's a crucifix? Yes, there's something there. <laughs> yeah. It was in the Navy. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. I'm just teasing. <laughs> you guys want to see well, my tattoo? 
Well, the reason that I'm mentioning tattoos and other things like that is this is also worry beads or malas. Um, Wearing a cross or crucifix around uh, the body. Uh, Believe me, you guys haven't ever worn it, but the robe itself is an object of mindfulness. Mm. You have to keep that robe, especially if you've got what they call the the, uh, the elephant's trunk, where you take and you roll the robe and you put it around like that, and then you tie it under the the, the left arm and drape the the end of the elephant trunk over your arm. And walking around like that, especially if you're left-handed, that's mindfulness. I mean, because if you, if you stretch your arm out like that, <laughs> your robe's going to fall off. <laughs> <laughs> And also, uh, along with that, the pendabat that the monks go on is also designed exactly that way to keep that elephant trunk on, keep your sangati, you have the bowl, you have the lid of the bowl, and then at this time of the year, you also have an umbrella. And you're walking in the mud and on the rocks with all of that equipment. You've got to open that bowl, allow the, uh, the little lady to uh, do her puja and to put the uh, items back in the bowl and then we got to get the lid back onto the bowl while we have the elephant trunk and also the umbrella that takes mental dexterity but it takes mindfulness you've got to watch what you're doing with every step because you don't want to first drop the lid of the bowl and then drop your robe <laughs> right in front of the old lady <laughs> So but if you frighten the old lady, she would get an opportunity to practice. Uh, but she's not there to do practice. She's there to do puja. You let her do the puja that she's there for, and you do your mindfulness practice. That's what you're there for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is all about then what can we do as um students of the Dhamma to put some of these physical anchors out to help us to remember. And one of the best that I can associate with is each other, to have each other, to get on the uh, uh, Skype and communicate with each other, to talk to one another, to share the Dhamma, to get something out of it, to uh, share what you've gotten out of it with each other. This is the building of the Sangha. We help each other that way. So this is one of the things that I would strongly recommend is get some friends that are in the Dhamma with you so that you can work with them or play with them to enjoy each other's company as well as uh, share the Dhamma and teach each other the Dhamma. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, this has been the best part of my practice has been bringing it into my friendships and relationships, you know, like... Like Sandra and I talk about it. We have a great time. You know, talk to my parents about it. Talk to my friends. I've, I've seen Eric multiple times. Kishan, too, once. And uh, I'm seeing Eric on Sunday, actually. He's coming up to visit us, uh, which will be great. So highly recommend. I think it's the most powerful aspect of all of this. Actually, I would go so far as to say it like this, that the reason that we practice the Dhamma in seclusion is so that we can practice the Dhamma in the world. Yep. That's the only point. 
that if I lived a life of seclusion completely, I wouldn't need the Dhamma because I would naturally clean out my mind and stop thinking about all the bad things that I have been taught because I've forgotten about it and I just live my life happily. So imagine that you've got a little cabin up in the mountains in Colorado and you've got no place to go and nothing to do and uh, you've got your winter supplies, you're all stocked up and you've got no alcohol, no books, no telephone and you've got four or five months of winter. What are you going to do with yourself? That's the whole point. Yeah. So seclusion is easy. But what we should do with our seclusion is to practice uh, getting the mind straightened out so that we can handle being in the outside world. Mm -hmm. Being in seclusion is easy. Everybody begins to clean up their act when they're in seclusion. But as soon as we go back into uh, society, we freak out. In fact, I've heard um, one particular story about a monk, uh, a Westerner, who had uh, been in Tibetan Buddhism for long enough that he eventually did the three-year retreat. And so he's in retreat in seclusion for three years. And when he came out of seclusion, uh, he had an opportunity to take a road trip with a bunch of Dhamma dudes and this monk just freaked out on every occasion. Everything bothered him. <laughs> the car speeding up, the car slowing down, the windows rolling up, the windows rolling down. There were 10,000 things that would happen to him that didn't happen when he was in that cave. And so that means in a way that he wasted his time for three years because he didn't really get himself ready for riding in a car. He couldn't manage himself. But he could manage himself for three years on his own just fine because there was no stimulus. And so naturally, without any negative stimulus at all, the mind, in fact, will go back wholesome. If we stay in seclusion long enough, but that (laughs) is not either possible nor even advisable. So is this is this the uh, the same story that we had talked about? you and me or is this a, a separate case who who is talking i didn't uh Keyshawn. Keyshawn. Keyshawn, what was your question Keyshawn? i i thought i'd shared uh that a similar story with you i was wondering if this was just a, another case of the same thing or if it was the same if i'm thinking this is the same story that we talked about at one point uh i think that this is the same guy and it's actually quite famous okay they that that, that it's 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 a um, it's a very telling story. Hmm. Go ahead, Robert. Thank you. So um, this reminds me. I was Eric and I were having a really good conversation the last time he was visiting, and um, about how uh, you know in a Watt environment you can have like minor annoyances that can kind of amount to much more because you've cleaned your mind out so much already, right? And you know, it's very interesting because I think this is the distinction between, say, you know, the Ashura realm, you know, the realm of the, the heavenly realm and the Buddha realm, right? Is in the heavenly realm, you know, you've already, when you're in seclusion, you're, you've removed all of your disturbances, you know, you're just enjoying life, everything's great. But the problem with the heaven realm is if something comes along that shakes that up a little bit, you can experience a lot of dukkha, especially if it's mm-hmm. being shaken up a lot of it. 
But the Buddha realm, the level above that, you can have anything come and nothing matters. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. In fact, the old joke is you've you've been a good Christian boy. You've been a goody two shoes. You've taken all the ceremonies and then you die and go to heaven. And when you get there, everything is hunky dory. Everything is beautiful. It's blissful as heaven. And then you look and you've just gotten uh, robbed that somebody picked your pocket. (laughs) (laughs) and you say well how could that possibly be and that is is because the pickpocket he confessed his sin and he got into heaven Hmm. (laughs) that's a good one don't don't go to christian heaven because the christians there are not (laughs) they got in because of forgiveness they got a free pass they got to get out of hell free card (laughs) but they're not in heaven at all So that's that's kind of um, a way of looking at it. Yes, seclusion. We need to get into seclusion to get away from it all so that we, in fact, can then get the mind in a really, really good state. But we do that in order to practice being able to come back into the world and handle the world. Then, in fact, the best place to practice the Dhamma for a very, very old Dhamma dude like the Buddha is in hell. Because now we have plenty of opportunity to baste the roast turkey and to butter it up. Uh, sure. But, but there's a great story in Judaism. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it on seclusion. Um, it's uh, Midrashim, so it's written by the rabbis. And the basic story is there was a rabbi and his son, and uh, they went into a cave for 12 years, and all they did, they were buried up to their necks, and all they did was read the Torah for 12 years in this cave. And then they got out of the cave after 12 years, and they had acquired these supernatural powers. And so they then went to a field, and they saw all these people working, and they got so upset at how stupid these people were doing this instead of studying Torah in a cave that they breathed fire from their mouths and destroyed the entire field, destroyed all the labor, destroyed everything, and then God got really upset about this and said, hey, you, you guys have to go do another year in the cave. That's not what the cave is about, is getting upset at all these people working. <laughs> and so then they do another year in the cave and they think about things, you know, a little more wholesomely or a lot more wholesomely. And they come out and they learn to respect the labor of everyone else in society instead of thinking they're so superior by being these cave dwellers. Yes, that's exactly right. That um, getting into seclusion does not make us superior. What makes us superior is the noble regard that we have for all of the unnoble people. Because the ignoble people, the ordinary people, they don't have any noble regard for each other. And so here you got these guys 12 years in the cave and they come out of that cave and they don't have any noble regard for the people that they come in contact with. Um, Yeah, there's something really interesting about that. I was listening to an interview the other day with a researcher in self-awareness and at the University of College London, something like that. And he said that, you know, self-awareness can be scientifically measured But what's really interesting about it is it's not connected to IQ or intelligence at all. So there are people with high IQ that have very low self-awareness and people with low IQ that have high and vice versa. 
And I think that's actually really beautiful because you can look at the Dhamma, which is teaching self-awareness, essentially, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how smart you are. And therefore, if you're a really good Dhamma dude, you shouldn't get on your high horse and say, oh, I'm so smart. I'm such a good Dhamma dude. It doesn't mean anything. You just have self-awareness and that has nothing to do with intelligence. And I thought that was really interesting. Yes, that's exactly correct. That we can appreciate each person has something that we can receive as a gift. Every person has something of value. So it is uh, uh, good for us instead of looking for the problems that other people have and say, oh, I'm better than they are because I don't have that problem. That we can stop looking at them with their problems and start looking at them with a wisdom eye to see what value they have, what's good about them. How can we cheer them up rather right. than burn them down? We want to base the turkey. They're already doing their own roasting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. We have to base that turkey. We have to butter them up. We have to be friendly with people. We have to see their um, their wholesome qualities. But we can't do that <clears throat> until we practice it. So just just merely being in seclusion and things kind of drain out. But when you go back into society, they're going to fill back up. We need to use that time in seclusion to not just empty out, but to drill a hole in the bottom. <laughs> so when we go back into society and stuff starts uh, building up in our bottle, we can let it drain out easily. And so that's one of the uh, the problems with seclusion alone is, is that seclusion alone without proper practice to get the mind. So, so Dombrado is getting into wholesome. Go ahead. Is the uh, the hole we're drilling is is the habit of the mind to have one wholesome thought after another. Mm-hmm. And to and to you know discern and not have unwholesome thought effectively. Right to take a um, that the the mind <clears throat> the mind full of unwholesome thoughts is very opaque in a way or it's very solid it's almost watertight. So what we have to do is start putting some holes in that to let some light in to to let the uh, uh, the bilge water out all that kind of stuff that we can think of is um, uh, the metaphors for uh, beginning to have wholesome thoughts. So we get into seclusion to learn to have wholesome thoughts, intentional wholesome thoughts, so that when we get back into society, we can continue to have wholesome thoughts in the face of all of the unwholesomeness of society. But we have to practice. Have to practice the body, have to practice the mind, have to practice the feelings, and then practice the objects of the mind. And so that's the whole Satipatthana. And it basically, as uh, Robert and I have been discussing, it's to get the mind fit for work so that you can do work well when you're in society rather than being under the influence of society. Oh, and one thing to add to that is one thing that's really beautiful about that is society does have a lot of interesting things to offer that that you can use in your practice. You know, 
um, such as lots of friends to play with, right? Mm -hmm. That's (laughs) That's right. Or interesting food to try. And you can engage with these things without tanha, you know, or as little as possible, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, and you can use them as objects of practice. And then practice becomes even more of an adventure in that way. Once you've strengthened the muscle. Mm -hmm. Exactly so. So um, this is the Satipatthana, the mind, the feelings, the body, and the bodies uh, in the mind's objects. These are the things that require us to pay attention. And that paying attention is the Sati. Mindfulness itself is kind of bland, wishy-washy, no effort, no energy in it. But where we're talking about, this takes skin in the game. It takes some effort. You have to pay attention to what we're doing. So, anybody have anything to say before we finish? Um, I do. I have a fun experience to share. So, have you ever heard of an isolation tank or a float tank? Oh, even they got a name. They yeah. call it the Samadhi tank. Yes, I know. Salt yeah, water so. and all of that. Yeah, that was a fad <laughs> in the 1970s. I don't think there's any commercial Samadhi tanks available anymore. No, they there are, that- actually. Oh, no. <laughs> in a big way. They're all over now. And I, on my birthday, I wanted to go to one. So Sandra and I went to, they're called float tanks. So we went to a float tank place near her apartment here. And, um, and it was so nice. It's set up like a spa. You go in, you get a tank, you know, you take a shower first, then you go in the tank. It's a thousand pounds of Epsom salts complete sensory deprivation, no light, no music. You float at the top due to all the salts and your skin mm-hmm. feels great too, but you don't hear anything. You don't see anything. And it's a very interesting experience, um, you know, for Saki. Not for and a meditator because so that's just average, ordinary. I'm sitting on the floor kind of sensory deprivation. It, it, it is in a way, but it's, it's even more because it truly is like there's nothing. You can't see anything. You can't hear anything. You wear earplugs. You can't smell any. You know, it's really just the nothing, the abyss. And it feels like you're inside of a womb, you know. And it's really very interesting experience. I enjoyed it so much. I bought a monthly subscription to go there (laughs) every day. I've been going every day. (laughs) And um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. Yeah. Save your money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Go swimming. Yeah. You're in the ocean. Go in the ocean. It's cold. Yeah, but that's okay. That's still simply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't, I, I you don't need the yeah. Samadhi tanks. Like I said, that was a, 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 fast, a passing fad. It was a fashion for a while, especially in California. So I imagine this in California again, or maybe in Washington State, where somebody says, hey, I can make the money off of these stupid Dama dudes. <laughs> 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 yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, I I'm gonna go again tomorrow. Well, you um, can just close your eyes right now and enjoy it. I can do that too, but I also enjoy that. You know, it's like why not? You know, <laughs> if you like it, you like it. You know. Yeah. Um, 
as long as you don't want it. <laughs> so, yes, I have done that also. And the, the experience that I got was, what's the point? I can do this without a tank. Hmm. Sure. Luckily enough, I was um, uh, invited to do it because they had just installed the tank and they were just kind of checking it out and they wanted to use me as a guinea pig. And so I had to come out and butter them up and tell them how wonderful it was, but <laughs> nothing much to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm still going to go tomorrow. I'm looking forward, but I you think can it also, is, you can think uh, about it in in sense that this is kind of a um, a prison, a, a um, uh, an isolation cell, a uh, what do they call it? Um, a solitary a confinement, right? Yeah. Okay. So why don't you just go to prison and get them lock you up in solitary confinement? At least that's cheap. They'll even feed you. The, there's a lot more duca there. <laughs> no, that's you what? brought it with you. No, no, no. It's 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 way. There's way more opportunities for Duca there. You know, there's the guards you have to deal with. There's the other inmates. You know, it's a whole. But that's thing. only an hour a day, and not even an hour a day. You only have to deal with those guards for about three or four minutes a day when they're shoving food in your face or beating you or something. Yeah. But the, whole, the other twenty-four, or the other twenty-three and three-quarter hours, all of the misery and suffering, you remembered because he beat you up yesterday sure. so so my one kind of you know repost would be that it is a form of seclusion to do this right um and uh, and i think for it a is, short time yes yes and it's a form of very intense seclusion where there's no sights there's nothing right and I think By the that, way, there's no such thing as sensory deprivation. The only real sensory deprivation is that can happen is when you're asleep or dead. That's sure, the, but the, actually, the samadhi tank is is in fact you get salt in your eyes. Not necessarily. Not but necessarily, you but you can. It's not sensory deprivation. But if you have sati, you can avoid the salt. But I would say, you know. Um, it, it is true. It is really seclusion in that sense where everything is replaced by the void. So you're correct. It's not total sensory deprivation, but it does replace senses with the void. Right. And that okay. is interesting, uh, to experience. But I would say, too, it's useful for beginners as well. You know, like, but don't have that much experience, you know, to go do something like this because they get to see what it's like when it's super quiet, you know, um, so I would recommend it 100% for beginners, you know, uh, but I really enjoy it, too. So, <laughs> OK, uh, yeah, but. well, there's there's <laughs> no reason to recommend that. What you're recommending is the effects that you're seeing in that. Right. Okay. 100%. So um, that's almost My like sister recommending tried to a particular brand of automobile when, in fact, what we're really wanting to talk about is transportation. Sure. Right. And in that case, a subway or a helicopter or a boat, you know, can all suit that purpose. Yes, exactly. So right. um, I would not say that. Um, <laughs> that's these Samati tanks that you're talking about is going to be the future of Buddhism. 
not a chance. I, I don't think so. I, I never would think that. But I do think it can be a good training wheel in a sense, right? Where they get to see what it's like to have an hour of real seclusion in a sense, right? No, and then it's the same thing. It's the same. If you close your eyes, it's dark. If you go out into seclusion where there's not a lot of noise, except maybe an occasional kookaburra, then you're not hearing anything. Sure, but let's say you live in a place like New York, you know, where there's really no uh, place to go. The, the, the price of one hour in a somatic tank is approximately the amount of money for a a train ticket to get out of Dodge or <laughs> get out of town, and then you're <laughs> out. But, but, but it's more convenient. But the somebody take you have to keep paying them and paying them and paying them for it when it's of very little or no value, other than um, let us say the um, the novelty of the experience. Yeah, and it also feels nice on your skin. Your skin gets really nice. <laughs> okay, it does. Fine. <laughs> the same thing happens in a shower. Pay attention to how your body feels. I imagine that a lot of the stuff uh, that people have by going into the samadhi tank is because they're expecting something and they're looking. The better thing to do is to go take a shower and really be in that shower. Feel that water coming on your face. Allow yourself to completely relax. In fact, a shower is a really excellent time to practice relaxation and letting go and wow it feels so good just to stand here in the, uh, the shower and just let the water run that's sure no, no totally problem. i agree with that 100 percent. you know I, I i think uh one thing that's interesting too is people do report having psychedelic experiences in the in the tanks i had that experience this week where i had a full-on every you know, experience you know, is psychedelic when you know how to look at things I live in a psychedelic world right now. I mean, look at the colors. Yeah. There's greens and crowns and all kinds of things. Right. And I think also, like... It's amazing, know, in fact. Right. And I think perhaps for me, like, one aspect of my uh, personality has been a search for adventure. Right? I love going on adventures. And, you know, I think that's one reason, you know, I'm attracted to psychedelics and stuff like that is because it's a really fun adventure, you know, just for the sake of going on an adventure. And I think that's one reason I like the tanks is because it's like an adventure. You know, it's, it's yes. very novel. Yeah. OK, here's a way of looking at adventures in general and the Samati tank in particular. And that is there will come a moment when you have said, I have been there and I have done that. And when you start looking at that monthly bill coming in and start feeling bad about the bill itself, then you'll that's, begin that's to, to look done. at things a little differently. Yeah, well, that's when you're done with the Duca right there is you say, mm -hmm. okay, enough of the adventure, right? Right, um, exactly. That that's one right. thing about adventures, all of them, is, is that they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right, and that's part of the sweetness of them is the ending. That's part of what makes them not drudgery. You know, once well, it becomes if drudgery, you will, that's the whole point. Right now, you don't see any end of the Samadhi tank. Well, actually, I do. Uh, it's going to end up... <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the plan is... I don't, um, don't want to... I don't want to interrupt uh, yeah. too much here, but we're, we're talking a little bit about dependent origination right now. And I was wondering the connection between um, 
sati mindfulness that we were talking about and these like cycles of dependent origination? Well, yes. The cycles of dependent origination, uh, they happen so fast that many of the steps within dependent origination can happen within one mind moment. In other words, this mind moment that we have that we we have an, an image. Let's say that we see something out there and then we recognize that image. That's one thought moment. We see it. We recognize it. Number two, the thought moment um, of recognition. The next thought moment is of going to be of impact and feeling. And then the next thought moment is going to be grasping and clinging. And then the next thought moment. So we're talking about now five thought moments that wound us up in Dukkha in a half a second. That doesn't take very long. Sure. And so these thought moments that we have, um, we need to find a way of interrupting them uh, along the path. And the best place to look is at the feelings themselves. How do I feel? How do I feel right now? How do I feel right now? This is the way of um, beginning to, to look. And then eventually, very quickly after that, we start to say, what was the thought that gave us this feeling? Sure. What is the thought that gave us this feeling? In other words, if we are experiencing anxiety, we experience that anxiety because we had something that triggered that anxiety. It just didn't come up all by itself, even if there is a habit. The habit doesn't happen until, or the jack doesn't come out of the jack-in-the-box until the the trigger is released. We've got to turn the crank. So what was the crank turning that opened the lid so that the, uh, the bad feeling jack can jump out? Sure. What is the thought? So this is uh, uh, speeding things up a little bit. So first we look at the feelings, then we look at the thought. After that, we look at the way that the thought is created. And then the next step would be how not just the thought is created, or in fact, how do we perceive things? But the next thought, uh, the next time, is to go back to just sensory awareness and be in sensory awareness. Just look and just see without thinking about it and then feeling bad about it. Okay, so that sensory input was actually that first fifth of a uh, tenth of a second. I saw something. Okay, the right thing to do is to keep looking at it and keep looking at it and keep looking at it, rather than think uh, see something and then think we know what it is and then act upon what we thought it was. Let's take another look. Let's investigate. So that's what investigation is, or paying attention is, is to keep looking and keep looking and keep looking instead of deciding what we think it is. Mm. So that's the way that we practice Patita Samapada at that instantaneous level. Is the perceiving of things. I wanted to mention something about that uh, that tank, because my sister was trying to rope me into that this this mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, and I told her, uh, if we're, we're going to go pay to lay in a salty tub, I'd rather uh, rather go get a massage or go to a spa. I feel like that's <laughs> that's a little bit better uh use my time get some good feelings out of it at least or something i don't know 
some dice. I got good feelings. But I, I would say, like, the adventure is worth it, right? So, you know, if you... Yeah, if I you, did it. I, I can't say, I can't blame you for doing it when I did it, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is actually, I just did it in 1980. I did it 40 years ago. Right. And, and I would say... This, for me, is one of the most fun parts of the Dhamma, is going on adventures and then using the Dhamma in the adventure. It's kind of like you're a hero in the adventure, and you're using your tools that you learned from Yoda here, you know? And it's really a good deal of fun, because you get to see all the different ways it unfolds. So if you become dogmatic and say, oh, I'm only going to do Dhamma things, you're missing out on all this fun from all these different adventures you can go on. And that's a beautiful part of life, is getting to use the same skills in all these different contexts and settings. Absolutely. With the, um, the end result is, is that the next time you think about going on that kind of adventure, you say, wait a minute, been there, done that. Right. An example right. is, is that, um, by the way, and the announcement is Danny and Debbie are both going to go to Calcutta, India. So that they can have a great big Indian wedding. Uh, so, so congratulations to them. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> and so Danny invited me to go to India for his wedding. And my first thought was, been there, done that. <laughs> I know what India is. <laughs> that's great. I love it. And so that's the attitude that we begin to develop. That's actually in the sutras. The Buddha talks about it. He's talking about it in re relationships specifically to when the Buddha is revered or reviled. In either case, he has no dejection or elation of the heart due to that. And why? Because he's been reviled before. He got over it. He's been revered before, and he got over it. Been there, done that. So when we're revered or reviled, we can just say, been there, done that. When you're about to pay the monthly bill for the Samadhi take, you can say, hey, I've been there, done that. <laughs> when you're invited to go to India for a wedding, you know, I've been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we don't have to go do so much stuff is because we have, a, we really did it that one time and we got it and we understand it completely. And so, it's, yeah, it's a passing fad. Go get some adventures. But in fact, one of the uh, the biggest problems uh, that I can see in, in America is that the Americans, they do not know that there is a big, wide, wonderful world out there. They think that their world ends at whatever borders they have in their mind, maybe state borders or county borders or national borders or whatever like that. But um, it's a real eye opener to go and to experience various things. So for a Baptist, going to the Methodist church for a while and then going to the Presbyterian church for the while and then go to the snake handlers for a while and then go to the holy rollers for a while and then go to the Catholics for a while. And that begins to get a much better understanding of what Christianity is rather than just saying, though, I learned all about Christianity from the church that I've gone to. Right. So, Samadhi yeah. tanks. And Zen cushions and all kinds of Buddhist paraphernalia is good for the beginners. 
because these are objects of mindfulness. That in fact, having a Buddha roof in the house is very much like having a uh, tattoo on your on your finger. That Buddha Rupa reminds you, you every time you see it, you have a little thought moment of, wow, wouldn't it be nice if I'd pay attention to this Buddha Rupa more often? <laughs> sure. And part of the beauty of it for me was going with my girlfriend so she could have this very meditative experience, you know, and it was just really beautiful. And I, I would say, too, getting back to the adventure point, you know, um, like one of the best things about adventures, they help strengthen Sangha. They help strengthen community and friendship. So, yes, you know, so if you go on adventures with your friends or your partner or your family, you know, you then have all these cool experiences to reflect on together and say like, Hey, remember when we did this, you know, and that's a great thing, you know, like the military, a uh, bad organization for many reasons, but one of the benefits of joining the military is you develop these friends through the uh, going through adv adventures together abroad in particular, yes. you know, mm -hmm. and I think it's really important uh, or maybe not important, but it can be very skillful and useful uh, to go on adventures with other people to help develop a sense of friendship and community. Okay. So now we're beginning to look at it from a slightly different perspective, and that is it's not really the adventure itself, but rather it is the mindfulness and paying attention to what's going on when we have that adventure. Because the quite possibility is, is that we have an adventure and then we want a do-over because we didn't get out of it what we wanted. And so we right. do it again, but now we're already in the habit of not getting out of it what we wanted. And so we've developed a habit of trying to get something out of something without recognizing that we're not getting anything out of it. Right. So well, what, that's the saying, Shinryu Suzuki, the journey is the reward, you know, which is completely true. There is no reward. There's only a journey. Yes. Yes. There is no reward for the journey. There is no destination. Right. You're, that your train ride will end in a train wreck. <laughs> That's the only possibility. Your train ride will end in a train wreck. It will not end in a destination. Right. You're going to die. So <laughs> one of the things that we need to do is to start planning on the fact that this train is going to wreck. Or let's not plan at all. Let's just enjoy it. <laughs> well, that's the planning, though. <laughs> that's the planning. We have mm. to plan on that. Because normally, we're taught in our society, and everybody's in the position of it, is that, oh, no, I, I want to take my train to the hospital before it wrecks. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I also wanted to address what Zach was asking about the dependent origination, because there was a really great podcast that just came out in Guru Viking with Lee Braston about his new book on dependent origination, which he's releasing for free. And uh, he talks about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa in that, actually, and the notion of rebirth as moment to moment, as opposed to so on and so forth. But one of the best things about that podcast that I found really interesting is the notion of uh, cause and effect being a fallacy because everything is interconnected and everything is arising uh, due to all the interconnections, not one simple cause alone. 
you know, it's a confluence of many different forces and commas. And I thought that was really interesting to reflect on. And I think it's 100% true. And I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was really cool. And I hope you listen to the podcast because it was a good one. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't bother. But I would, yeah. <laughs> would, I would comment. Yeah. And the, and the comment is, is that just because cause and effect is complicated doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That there sure. is itiapapajayata in everything. The, sure. the um, anxiety that we experience had a cause. It had an immediate cause as well as an underlying cause. So both the underlying cause and the immediate cause, an example of that is, is that the bullet goes into the gas tank. And then that causes an explosion. But there's also the underlying condition that the gas tank was full of gas. If the gas tank had been full of water instead, then when the bullet got there, the, the, the water tank wouldn't have exploded. Okay, so there are two causes in there. One was the fact that there was already existing gas in the tank, and then the bullet hits it. So there's both the cause and the effect. But not only that, but you could say a third one is that a bullet in the gas tank may not set the gas on fire. That has to get to something hot after it gets out. So there may be a whole bunch of causes and effects, but they yeah. all came together. This is why we would rather use instead of the word cause, a better word to use is conditioning. Right. That things get conditioned so that they happen. An example of that is, is that a fire only conditions a stake. Doesn't cause the stake. The cow caused the stake, except that when the cow caused the stake, it wasn't a, it wasn't a stake. So the cow, plus the delivery, plus the uh, the slaughter, plus the gas, and right. all of that is what came about to make the stake. That, but there that, was a bunch of causes and effects, or a bunches of conditionings going on that made that cow turn into a stake. That's exactly what. Lee Brazington is talking about. He's talking about the Buddha teaching dependent origination. This arises dependent on that, not necessarily that causing this. So he's not saying that cause and effect doesn't exist. He's saying that the Buddha is teaching dependent origination uh, as like all those different streams of dependently arising mm -hmm. phenomena interacting. Exactly. Cause, cause something. Well, they, they are dependent on. Uh, exactly so. So the problem word is the English word cause. That's the problem. As with much of, much of the problem of understanding the teaching of the Buddha is because we're using wrong English words to describe a real situation. And perhaps we should not be using the word cause effect. We should use the word everything is conditioned. That things do not arise or don't happen without a condition, without a set of conditions, often a whole lot of conditions. Yeah, there's this great meme about it's called ancestral mathematics, and it goes back each generation. So you have two parents, four grandparents, eight grand great grandparents, 16 great greats, and it goes on to like 2000 and something and the great, great, great or something. It never works out that way. Yeah, because there are some that that's, have that's the math. 
That's the mathematics yep. of a third grader. Right. <laughs> Once he becomes a teenager, he's recognizing that, hey, everybody's my daddy. <laughs> uh. <laughs> because we see authority figures in everybody. So the principal and the cop and the preacher and everybody's an authority over me. But um, a more uh, realistic or the adult point of view is to recognize that, wait a minute, what about Aunt Susie? Where was she in all of this grandpa and grandma stuff? Because she could have been my grandma. In fact, there's an old song out of the 1950s that uh, uh, in the song, they work it around of who married who and what happened so that I wind up being I'm my own grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... I'm curious, you know, to get back to the adventure point, um, you know, it makes me think of the Zen master E.Q. Sojin. Are you familiar with him? No. So he was a Zen master, 16th century Japan, and he was famous for not respecting any of the conventions of the monastic order. So he would um, pee on statues of the Buddha. He would get drunk a lot. He would visit brothels. Um, he would do all this stuff and he'd write beautiful poetry too. And he, uh, was very famous in part because his Dhamma was so excellent. You know, he would teach really excellent Dhamma that is still studied today in Zen. Um, and he was the bastard son of the emperor as well, which is another interesting fact. But, um, I find him inspiring because he had Dhamma to his bones to the point where he was willing to go on any and every adventure just to, to use it as a teaching for the Dhamma, um, you know, through his talks and through his poetry and whatnot. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, while I understand the concept, you could also go to, to say that he is going on some of those adventures out of ignorance. Perhaps, yes. Because why would he, why would he visit a brothel more than once. I mean, all you need is one visit, and after that, been there, done that. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I um, there is also another side of that that we can perhaps talk about another time, but there is the concept of one who knows the Dhamma but does not live the Dhamma. Hmm. That there are several examples of that. Hmm. But basically, if you know the Dhamma, that means that you, uh, to really know the Dhamma, you live the Dhamma. You don't just know it and can spout off all of the beautiful philosophical kinds of stuff. But you're actually living the Dhamma in the sense that you don't need to go to the brothel because you know what's there. Well, it's interesting. That you don't need to, pay, to pee on a Buddha Rupa because you know the reaction that people are going to have to that. Right. Well, it's interesting. You could be a better actually, teacher than uh, than breaking some of the the social norms. And in fact, that's one of the things that you can see um, uh, commonly in Western Buddhism. Oh, well, I guess that he's teaching. Okay, what he has to say is great, but he's an asshole. Right. And therefore, we don't want anything to do with him because he's an asshole. Well, the guy that you're talking about, he now is seen as a great great Zen master from the past, but I bet in the temp contemporary people around him thought he was an asshole. Absolutely. He behaved and, like uh, one. So uh, the yeah, question yeah. is, can you learn enough about the Dhamma to stop being an asshole, Robert? 
Yeah, for sure. And there's, there's a great there's a great story about him. Uh, there's a lot of great stories, but one of them is he went to a fan. He was the abbot of one of the top monasteries in Japan for a while, and he was invited to a dinner, and he showed up like a homeless person, uh, dressed as a homeless person, and they wouldn't let him in the dinner. And then he went back and put on his abbot's robes, and he returned, and they allowed him in. Very nice to him, polite. Then he got completely naked and took the robes off and put them on the seat and said the dinner was for the robes, not for me. And I think that reflects the stratified nature of Japanese society that I think he was trying to attack at that time. And the very you know, precise social rituals that they have in Japan. Um, and I thought that was yeah yeah speaking of naked (laughs) (laughs) there are quite a few people on the internet who don't want to have anything to do with me because my dom is no good because i'm not wearing a shirt how could he right right and so that's the whole point that we're making about yeah so some big dude back in the 1600s was an asshole and now he's famous for his dhamma teachings but the fact is is that i imagine that the people who were at that dinner were more interested in him being naked than whether or not he was teaching them about uh the dinners for the robes because of course the dinners for the robes of course it is Right. And Couldn't have think, been otherwise. I mean, if he really was a uh, a, a homeless street dweller, then uh, he wouldn't have been invited because homeless street dwellers are known to be crooks, criminals um, of no value. The place is dangerous. Of course, they wouldn't let him in. He should have known all of this stuff. Right. And I think this kind of goes to you know, the uh, pomp, and this is kind of like attachments to rites, rules, and r- rituals, but from the opposite perspective, where it's as though he's attached to destroying them, which is another form of attachment, right? Ah, um, except that what's the difference then between destroying things as a, um, an ignoramus, a, uh, uh, an ordinary person full of dukkha, if you're going around destroying things, Buddha, Buddhist uh, or nobles don't go around destroying things. They go around making friends with it. Right. So I would not expect that he would be a very good example. Another one would be uh, Trompa Rinpoche. Right. He, he did the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He did exactly the same thing, and it didn't work. Right. It undermined him. Mm-hmm. It got in the way of his teachings because people would fixate on that. Exactly. That's like, what I'm talking about is, is that there yep. is a certain amount of decorum that you, if you're going to be noble, you have to know that, that breaking those social conventions is going to upset people. And we're not here to upset people. We're here to help them understand how to be happy, not how to be upset because I'm going around naked. <laughs> sure. Totally. Um, I think it is a really fine line, right? Because I think it is skillful. No, it's not a fine line. The thing is at least three feet broad. It takes two Mm. or three big steps to get across that line. It's not a fine line at all. It's it's definitely. You don't do things that intentionally upset people. Sure, sure, totally. I mean, I would say you can do things that 
might be annoying to some people, like not wearing a shirt on the calls, for example, right? Um, some people don't like that, but but it's not intentionally, you know, they don't have to watch the videos. They don't have to call you. They don't have to be around you, right? Mm-hmm. If you showed up, you know, at Wat Swan Moak, you know, just wearing boxers, you would upset people because they can't really do much about, you know, like you're kind of infringing on the order of the uh, institution to some extent, right? So there is Bam, some kind of... Bam is tie, okay? Number one, you will not yeah. let me off the property without a shirt on. <laughs> that, in, that in fact, the last time it happened, I've got a friend, I went to pick him up over at the... Uh, uh, he came to the to the, uh, to the Watt on a, uh, after arriving from Europe. And it's only a couple of blocks from here. And she says, you don't get in that truck and go get him. I'm not going to get out of the truck. She says, you put a shirt on. <laughs> then you're right here laughing at me. <laughs> hey, I don't leave the property without a shirt on. <laughs> uh, you would say that, or I'll put myself on mute. Okay, guys. Well, this has been a long talk and uh, been all over the place. We were going for mindfulness and we've gotten some other stuff done. Zach, do you have anything to say before we finish? Nope. Grateful for the explanation. Okay. How about you, Raul? You okay? Okay. How about Keyshawn and uh, uh, Yusef? You guys still on? And all? Yep. Still, uh, still listening. Went to get some food. <laughs> Great. And I imagine that, uh, um, uh, Clint, you're still here with us, right? Clint is not, but Eric is. Okay, Eric is still here. Okay, Eric, you have anything to say before we finish? Nope, this has been great. (laughs) All right, guys. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll see you later. Thanks so much. This has been a whole interesting talk. I really enjoyed it. You've been all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Good adventure. Hey, good to see you again. Yes, let's take an adventure next week. We'll see you guys again. All right. Keyshawn, we'll see you later. See you (laughs) you later. Cheers. Okay, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.